Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We're asking some of the most basic and fundamental questions about the Gospel. What it is that we are supposed to believe in order to be Christians, indeed in order to be saved, and we think that the place to start in any such discussion is with the words of Jesus Christ himself. It makes sense that in the investigation of any topic you begin at the beginning, and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus is perfectly clear. He came into Galilee preaching what he called the gospel about the kingdom of God, or God's gospel. You'll find that clearly laid out in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. There we read that after John the Baptist had been put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee saying that the kingdom of God was at hand. Here are his actual words. He came preaching what Mark called God's gospel. That's to say a message which comes from the highest authority in the universe, from the Father of Jesus Christ, the one God of Israel. And that God was sending a message or a gospel or a piece of supremely good news through the agency of Jesus Christ, whom we believe to be the Son of God conceived supernaturally in the womb of Mary. Now that Son of God, Jesus Christ, announced the message from God his Father, what he called God's gospel. And what was that gospel? Well, here it is, clearly laid out in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel, that is, of the kingdom of God, as we see from the context. Now, it's entirely clear if you'll examine the beginning of the ministry as described by Matthew and by Luke that Jesus was concerned with one single objective, and that was to relay, to transmit, and to convey to his audiences at all times the sacred message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. A fundamentally important text is found in this connection in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. In this verse, Jesus opens up his entire mind for us. He allows us to see what it was that was driving him in his whole mission and ministry. In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus said this, I am under a divine compulsion, as the Greek there tells us. I am duty-bound on the authority of God himself to announce the good news or gospel about the kingdom of God. That is the reason for which I was sent. Now, it's always useful to examine the parallel passage to the one we just read in Luke 4.43, and that's found in Mark chapter 1, verse 38. In that verse, Jesus said, Let's go to the next towns, so that I may preach there also. That's the reason why I'm on my mission. you note that in Luke, in Luke's report, that is, of Jesus' basic fundamental statement about his own mission, Luke said that Jesus was duty-bound to preach the gospel about the kingdom of God. Mark reported that simply as saying that Jesus was bound to preach. Now, notice carefully what we can learn by comparing these two passages which report the same event but in slightly different language. The variety of language enables us to establish a most basic fact about the New Testament. When people preach in the New Testament... They're not just preaching vaguely about good works or loving your neighbor, although certainly that's included. 
Preaching is a technical term for the announcing of the gospel. And the gospel is not a vague term. The gospel is the shorthand way of describing the gospel about the kingdom of God. All gospel phrases in the New Testament, all preaching phrases, go back to an original text in the ministry of Jesus where the preaching, the gospel preaching that is, is fully defined for us as the preaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God. That is the basic root idea of all preaching in the New Testament. And we see that wonderfully demonstrated here by comparing Luke 4.43 with Mark 1 verse 38. Luke tells us that Jesus was preaching the gospel about the kingdom. Mark tells us simply that he was preaching. Those two things, of course, are equivalent. They have exactly the same meaning. What this proves is that preaching in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles means preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God. Now, the thing that puzzles us is that in contemporary preaching, you don't hear this phrase, the gospel about the kingdom of God. You may occasionally hear references to the kingdom, usually though the kingdom is not defined with any clarity. But very seldom do you hear a reference to the preaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, the situation is quite different in the New Testament. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said that this gospel about the kingdom must be heralded in the whole world to all the nations before the end comes. You see, for Jesus, the gospel was so familiar that it was known even as this gospel, this well-known gospel, the gospel that we all share as believers, and it was the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so you may be wondering then, what is the relation of this gospel of the kingdom to the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, the facts of the New Testament are quite simple. The basis of the gospel was always the gospel concerning the kingdom of God. Now, to that gospel were added later the facts about the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And so the gospel, so to speak, expanded. It was built upon. It began with its foundation in the knowledge of the kingdom of God, the facts and information about the kingdom of God. And on that basis, then, additional facts were added, namely the fact that Jesus died for our sins as a sacrificial offering for our atonement so that our sins could be wiped away by the substitutionary death of Jesus on our behalf on the cross. And then, of course, the vital fact about his being resurrected on the third day, on the Sunday after his crucifixion on Friday, Jesus was supernaturally raised from death. And subsequently then he spoke of the kingdom of God for 40 days and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's now waiting until he returns to conquer his enemies and establish the throne of David in Jerusalem as all the Hebrew prophets have promised it. It was to that great future of Jesus' session on the throne of David in Jerusalem that the angel Gabriel looked forward when he announced to Mary before the birth of Jesus that the Lord God is one day going to give him, that's to say Mary's son, give him the throne of his father David and he's going to rule over the house of Jacob forever. In its first century Palestinian and Jewish context that promise of course was entirely clear. It was the promise of the restoration of the distinguished throne of David. Now, that throne, of course, had ceased to function since about 586 B.C., when the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, had been taken ignominiously to Babylon and finally died there. 
Now, when a handful of Jews returned under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the throne of David was not re-established. And so the messianic promise was based on the hope that one day God's great covenant with David about a permanent throne for him would indeed find fulfillment. When Jesus was born then and believed to be the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the hopes for the great restoration of the throne to David were fanned into flame. And no doubt, Jesus' followers hoped that that kingdom would be established there and then. What they had to learn, of course, was that the Messiah was destined to die, to be crucified at the hands of the Romans and the Jews, that he had to die first before he could return from heaven in power and glory to establish the kingdom of God. For nearly 2,000 years now, the Christian church has been expecting the arrival of the Messiah. And for some, that delay has caused a failure of faith. They've given up believing that Jesus is going to come back. But if he doesn't return, then he will be proven a false prophet. And that, of course, is an impossibility for those who have faith that he was and is indeed the promised Messiah of Israel. Now, the Jewish people, of course, who did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, still nevertheless looked forward to a time when the Messiah, the true Messiah, as they thought, would arrive. The Jewish people have missed the fact that Jesus of Nazareth of the first century A.D. was indeed the promised Messiah. They failed to grasp that great fact, and that's the fact that distinguishes Judaism from Christianity. Many Jews are still expecting the Messiah to come, but some of them have abandoned that hope. They're hoping to make this present world a better place by working hard. But that's not the hope of the Messiah. The messianic hope is based on a cataclysmic intervention by God destined to change forever the course of human history. Jesus spoke in Matthew 24 of his future coming as like the flood which destroyed vast numbers of people, which obliterated whole nations and left, according to the Bible story, a mere eight survivors. Here are Jesus' own words in regard to that future day of the coming of the kingdom. Of that day, he said in Matthew 24, verse 36, No one knows, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, they did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That word coming there is parousia in the Greek, the technical term for the dazzling and splendid supernatural arrival of Jesus in the future a stupendous event which will take a heedless world unawares. They did not know, Jesus said in verse 39 of Matthew 24, until the flood came and took them all away, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man in the future be. At that time two will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. May I point out that the American public has been lulled into a sense of false security by the idea that Jesus is coming to take the Christians off the earth before the time of great tribulation. Now, that's a most problematic theory. It would appear to be contradicted flat by Jesus' own words in Matthew 24. 
In Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus said there's going to be a great tribulation, unparalleled since the beginning of the world up to that time. And earlier in verse 15, he had announced the sign which will initiate that time of unparalleled tribulation. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then flee to the mountains. Now, it's an extraordinary thing to urge people to flee at the prospect of the great tribulation if, in fact, they're expecting to be removed supernaturally from the earth to heaven. Why would you tell the Christians to flee to the hills if, in fact, they're going to be removed from the scene altogether? That doesn't make any sense. Not only that, in Matthew 24, verse 29, we read that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun is going to be darkened, the moon will not give her light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens, and at that time then he sends the angels out to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. But you noticed, I'm sure, in the words of Jesus there, that the elect are to be gathered after the tribulation. And I hardly need to remind you that when Jesus said elect, he meant the Christians. In Matthew 22, verse 14, he spoke of many being called and few being elect. Those, of course, are Christian believers. It is those elect who are to be gathered after the time of the Great Tribulation. We invite you to check these findings carefully in your own Bible at home. And join us again as we continue to probe these most basic questions about life and immortality, as Jesus promised it to us in his good news about the kingdom of God.